gentlemen, I'm super glad this is a podcast that's being done remotely by Skype this week because I'm very glad Stuart Lake can't see me or indeed smell me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I will explain more after introducing, uh, well, I'm Natalie Behensky and with me via Skype this week is Stuart Lake. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. It's great to be with you through the wonders of the internet. Just to explain, I have just returned home from the Thursday night performances of Die Hard, the movie, the play, the Brisbane powerhouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks to all who have come along and supported the show so far. But Stu and I were determined to podcast. We were. We had to make this a Skype one in order to get our opinions out there because I have feelings, Stu. There's there's a lot of feelings. There was was two excellent episodes of television that we're going to talk about today. It's really, really good. Yeah. So we're talking episode three of... Or four? A four of, of HDM, yeah. His Dark Materials. Is it four already? Yeah. Yeah, we're smashing through them. Are we? I could have sworn it was three. Never oh, mind. It, oh, I, never. I, I could be getting ahead of myself. Okay, I'll fix it in post. By the time people look at this on their po- iPod, it'll be iPod? <laughs> iPod. There's a novel thing that hasn't existed <laughs> for a while. They still exist. By the time you look at this on your podcast feed, I'll have fixed up which episodes, but I know it's episode six of Watchmen. It definitely is. And it is it is episode four of um, His Dark Materials. Okay. We're sorted. Oh, actually, no. Uh, no, am I, am I getting that completely wrong? I think I might be getting that completely wrong. That's really weird. The point is, I'm very I'm sure sad. It's episode four. <laughs> Sorry. Like, just come home from a crazy couple of shows. Big week. Brain is all blah, 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 blah. And going straight into a podcast. So if I wound up, wind up quoting dialogue from Die Hard, you'll understand why. Okay. Yes, just exactly. Yes. Me. And uh, just to just to put a, a definitive line under that whole conversation is definitely episode four, uh, the title of which is Armor, uh, which is very uh, appropriate. Yeah. Given who we meet in this yeah. episode. All right. So as you say, I agree. Two really good episodes. Very enjoyable for different reasons. Things started to happen, which is good. But let's go to his dark materials first. And we meet two key significant characters in this universe. <laughs> we meet Lee Scoresby, which is Lynn Manuel Miranda. And it sure is. Look, we've got to do our one minute challenge. Uh, we do, yes. Probably the best way to get into this episode because I wrote down some stuff. But um, you go first, Stu. You're the. Okay. Newbie to his dark materials. So we put a minute on the clock and we had to write down everything we remembered. I struggled this week, so let's see how you <laughs> Well, actually, I've got to fair bit down because I was um, surprisingly engaged in this episode. And the reason for that is that uh, we finally get to meet the armored polar bears. Yes. Uh, these are giant polar bears who also wear armor because, like, you know, why you take two awesome things, put them together. <laughs> it works. It just works. They um, are the the, Panzer Bjorn. The Panzer Bjorn. The Panzer Bjorn, Natalie. I Fantastic. Know. I love it. I love it. I'm so 1,000% on board with this. I, I love this development. You're um, for it, I think, is what the kids say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the second thing I wrote down, again, in all caps, was Lin-Manuel Miranda, because yeah. uh, we, we finally see him this week. Uh, pretty good. Like, like he's, he's obviously a rogue, a bit of a, yeah. bit of a roguish character. He plays by his own rules. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> he's, he's nobody's man, unless That's for a um, he has uh, he has an adorable relationship with his is it a hair um, demon yeah. that he has Esther is her name 
Yeah, which which is fantastic. The the third thing I wrote down was what did Yorick do? Because there's he obviously like has done something to be in this situation where he's basically a slave to the to the metal working townsfolk. Um, yeah. so he's done something. I don't think we got an answer to that this time around. He sort of said that he went he went nuts and and knocked down buildings or something. But you know, I don't think that's well, well, that's not the full answer, is it? Like there's something else. There's a deeper story there. I don't think so, but go on, finish your list. Oh, okay, right here. The next thing I wrote was, is Azrael really captured? Because we do not see him. Yes. Um, That could be for plot reasons, or it could be because they couldn't afford to have have (laughs) the actor appear in this episode, (laughs) played by Mr. Not Appearing in this episode. Yes. Um, So I wasn't sure if that was there. Uh, The next thing I wrote was, uh, I'm getting a a serious Cersei vibe off Mrs. Coulter, in that (laughs) she's... A little bit crazy, very driven, and tends to just barrel through problems, yeah. uh, assuming everything will work out. Yeah, and is clearly a bit obsessed with her daughter. Yeah, well, that's right. Exactly. Yes, that's very true. So another parallel there. But I, I thought um, I definitely got that same sort of vibe where where she's talking to the magisterium, uh, making little gambits and plays, and you know, saying that oh, you know, she needs to she needs to have time with the alethiometer and all that sort of thing, and and, you know, she will be punished. And then it's like, no, 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 I won't be punished. In fact, you will give me what I want. Mm. And, you know, doing these little gambits to to make that happen, which was very cool. The next thing I wrote was uh, Lyra is an active protagonist this week, which is always nice. It mm. does help. Um, she wants things and she goes and uh, interacts with other characters and she gets them. Um, for the first three episodes, she's been a largely passive character and things have happened to her. So it's very, very good to see her sort of taking the lead and, and driving the action in this story. It, it really helps. Um, I know in, in, a, in a novel, it's good to have a viewpoint character who just sort of like is there so that you are also there and things happen around them. And that doesn't matter so much in, in a novel form. But in a show, the camera puts us there and we need the characters to do things. So it, it's really nice to, to have the main character of the show actually out and doing stuff. It's really good. Well, that's proper TV critical analysis, Stu. I don't think my yeah, no, it's it's far too highfalutin for this for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just liked it. I, I I thought every all the characters in the episode this week were active. They were all yeah. doing things, and no one was being all secretive for no reason, and being all mysterious and weird and and strange. And we're, we're used to the world now. Or so, you know, if you if you weren't familiar with the world before. You are now sort of eased in. You know the you know the deal. You know what where who everyone is, how they relate to each other, and they're all acting actively. And it's really really good. And the show really clicked into place this week, and I loved it. Yeah, I think it definitely jumped up a notch. Was that your full list? Uh, that that was it. And the only thing I wrote down at the very end was alethiometers, just in general. Uh, they yeah. seem to be really figuring into this, so we can talk about that and how they they sort of relate to each other uh, a bit later. But but yeah, no, I just really wanted to just make a note of it because uh, yeah, that like that that's really becoming what was again like you know something that was just a little throwaway thing. It's like oh, and by the way, here's like this truth-telling golden compass. You know, now it's actually having a bearing on the plot. Like things are happening because of it, so that's great. And uh, as I wrote down in mine, Lyra can read it like a pro. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm very and actually used a really, really cool analogy to um to describe how she used it. I really liked, you know, that she was like feeling for a ladder in the dark, but with her brain. That's like me in the mornings trying to wake up. 
Except I'm not using my brain at all. But, yes, so I wrote down Lyra can read the alethiometer like a pro, Mm -hmm. Uh, even after just reading it once last episode, she's sort of good to go. Um, But I'll get to that in a second. First thing I wrote down was actually Armored Bear. Armored Bear. Uh, This one is named Yorick Bernison, very Icelandic name there. Now, what I loved about this, obviously we met Lee Scoresby, Lin-Manuel Miranda, just doesn't he look smug and cool and really happy to be getting about in an awesome sort of steampunky aeronautical outfit? I mean, look, if if you were Lee Scoresby and you looked like that and you travelled in a hot air balloon, I feel like you would have a pretty smug look on your face most of the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, with his, uh, his rap, and I did like with Hester the hair because I was a bit worried she was going to be sort of the fretting demon because she was like oh come on lee don't get us into trouble again and he was like what trouble hester i'm just a rascally ragamuffin coming to help my <laughs> friend and she was like oh don't get us into trouble you remember so i was a bit worried they were setting up that dynamic but then when he later got into a fist fight in the yeah, pub, yeah. she was like behind you bottle yeah. cup she's she helping like, out yeah it's really good i was excited by that but what I did write down about Yorick, the bear, is that he gets into town first from this timeline of the show mm. and says, right, I'm here looking for the bear. Now, it's not that big of a town. <laughs> it's a small seaport. That is true. That is it very true. showed us it's not huge, you know? Okay, maybe it's bigger than what they showed us, but it's not massive. No. And he spends a... I don't know, an amount of time failing to find the bear, ends up in a pub going, I'm looking for a bear, and then gets into a fist fight. Lyra, meanwhile, <laughs> along with Carter Corum, just walks straight up and finds him. But doesn't doesn't she use the alethiometer to find him? Did she? I, I can't she... remember. I can't remember whether she did or not. I, maybe I'm conflating that with something else. She used the alethiometer to find his armour. Yes, yes, okay, that, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, okay. I just, for something that, that, that struck me is that was very convenient that Lee Scoresby arrives, uh, you know, at the same time roughly as them. They hear there's a bear in town, find him straight away. Lee Scoresby sure. goes, well, I better take the long route outside of town. And, like, if he's his friend and he knows him, surely he would. Anyway, small bit of pedantry there. No, that's right. And and I I will just say, you know, if you walk into a bar in a strange town and say you're looking for a bear, you've got to expect a weird reaction maybe from people. That's all I'll say. They really set that scene up like a Western. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's literally coming in going, I'm trying to pick a fight. And and literally someone's playing the piano and it stops or someone's pouring it stop like an old Western. (laughs) And it turns out the reason he was um, picking a fight is that so he could pickpocket these people as he was fighting them. Yes, yeah, yeah. Paid for his accommodation and a warm bed and a bath, I assume. <laughs> um, but anyway, back to my list. Uh, I also wrote Mrs. Coulter has Azriel? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> not, not. We don't see him. I have him. Um, uh, but and and well, I also wrote it's more of Ruth Wilson walking through corridors because yes, then she ends up. <laughs> Well, you won't punish me. I just walked down 17 more corridors. Yes, that's right. 
Um, so Cersei was the queen of standing on balconies and looking, um, you know, pointedly into the middle distance, uh, whereas Mrs. Coulter strides purposefully down corridors. Yeah, Mrs. Coulter of the corridors. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's constantly sashaying down. <laughs> In a series of fashionable, uh, what do they call those, like raincoats, basically? <laughs> yeah, um, she sort of wears peplum. She was wearing more peplum this time around. I don't know. Okay. Being- Big. That is a word I've never heard before. You're kidding me. <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. You've never heard of peplum. I've never heard of peplum. Okay. It's a fun so word to say. I want you to picture, you're a nerd, right? I want you to picture, yes. uh, what's the chick that Captain America likes? Agent Carter, is that right? Yes, a- Agent Carter, yeah. Peggy yeah, Carter? Yeah, well, she wears, yeah. So think of that 1940s look with the straight skirt, but then the jacket that's kind yes. of pinched in at the waist and flares out a bit. Absolutely, yeah. So that is called peplum, and it comes, oh, okay. right. it comes back into fashion every couple of years. You'll get jackets with a peplum cut. It's still fashionable to this day. It's not at the moment. It was a couple of years ago. It'll be back. Give it a couple of years. But it's a very, <laughs> it's a very feminine, flattering 1930s, 40s look. Mm. It's kind of instant classic 40s sort of style. So she's. She's in a lot of these 1930s, 1940s kind of outfits that are um, very feminine but also very structured. And you'll notice yes. I, they're making a lot of points with her fashion as to her personality. Mm. This could be me just making stuff up, but it's it's a very much a controlled, um, you know, I am the woman. Look at my delicate, you know, bouncy hair. But her, everything about her is controlled. There's nothing soft about Mrs. Coulter. It's sure, all, yeah. you know, it's it's all tightly coiffed and cosseted and the peplum is like that little. Anyway, I'm talking too much about fashion that I don't really know that much about. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but that's, that's really interesting. I, I never heard the word peplum before and now I know exactly. I now I know exactly what it means because I was searching for the word to describe exactly what she was wearing this episode and that's that's what it is. Yes. Like ja- um, lots of lots of lots of structured jackets. Yes, exactly. And that little flare is yeah. pe- is called peplum. So right. Okay. You'll you'll see it in it comes around in Q and all these kinds of brands that do those sort of structured clothing for business ladies, you know, corporate business ladies. Um, now I also wrote down Lord Boreal, who's snake guy. Mind you, yes. there was another snake guy, the Magisterium guy up in the north. In Trollskund, I think the town is called. Yeah. In the north. Anyway, he had a snake as well, I think, or a lizard. Well, um, the the the, the guy enough- who the guy who who kept the witch's plants. Oh, it was him. That's right. He yeah, had a yeah. Snake. He had a snake, which which I didn't know whether that was like telling us something or 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 what. I mean, I don't I don't want to sort of be, I don't want to be like demon like prejudiced against people <laughs> like where, you know. You, you're like, oh, you have a snake. Oh, okay, right. Literally the Slytherin. Untrustworthy in Harry Slytherin, you know. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's literally the Slytherin from Harry Potter. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> oh, you've got a snake demon, do you? Oh, shame. You're going to be evil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it turns out you're going to be untrustworthy and uh, slippery. Yes. But the other guy, the Magisterium guy, I think had a lizard. So, again, all these Magisterium people and their reptiles. Hmm. Uh, it, yeah, as you say, it, it's, it's a little bit, you know, I'm not demon racist, but 
Australian guys do have snakes. Um, Lord Boreal wants – so Mrs. Coulter wants a question answered by an alethiometer at the Magisterium, yes. who is Lyra. And they're like, um, don't you know? And she's like, just answer my question. And then Lord Boreal wants a question answered as well, but he doesn't seem to – what did, did he say his? I've just forgotten. He had a question too. But they um, both they both asked the guy whose job it is to read the alethiometer, and he's like, well, this could take months, as opposed to Lyra who just kind of, you know, as you say, puts a foot down a ladder in the dark. Yeah, um, totally. This guy has to go, you know, pull out books. He has to basically be Sam Tarly in uh, Old Town with the big light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got to take some time to find out the plot. Yes. And then the final thing that I – oh, sorry. I did write down that um, uh, Lyra summoned the witches. Yes. The witches yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so I, 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 we had heard last week that they were going to try and enlist the help of the witches. Mm. Uh, so that's really that's really cool that um, uh, the witches can be summoned by plants. Yeah, cloud pine, I think it's called. Right. They each have a little stick of it, and so Lyra's task was to find which one was Seraphina Peckelos, and then they summoned her, or at least her demon, because witches can send their demons much further apart than regular humans. Which is an interesting piece of information. Yes, and so. Her demon turns up, and I forgot his name. Father Coram did say his name, but he's like this incredibly well-spoken. I seem to recall he was a goose from the novel, but that didn't look like a goose. I, I yeah, I, I read up on this, and apparently he was a goose in the novel. Um, huh? So because he's here, he he's voiced by David Suchet, uh, uh, Hercule Poirot himself. Yay! I was wondering. Uh, about that voice yeah he's one of the few he's one of the few demons demon voices who actually is is a guy like, like who is a, a known actor um all the other ones are, are either vo like like either unknown actors or, or they almost primarily do voice acting oh. uh so yeah he's the only sort of name actor who's who's also voicing a demon um but yeah no i, I apparently in in the books he's is a goose uh, and in this, he looks like he looks to be some sort of falcon or or yeah. snow owl or something. I wonder because I'm sure it was called a snow goose in, and, and I love the imagery of that. But I wonder why they changed it. Maybe David Suchet has some sort of writer where he says, "I will, <laughs> I, will I will not, not play, play a goose. goose. I will not act the goose." <laughs> uh, but yes, the final thing that I wrote down was Eofor Rackneson, who is yes, yes. <laughs> The other polar armored polar bear that we saw, Mrs. Coulter, turn up to go, hey, um, hey, you owe me. <laughs> so he is he's the king of the armored bears. So he, and they hinted at this, and this is why I think that it's sort of explained why Eoric is in that village. Yes. So the the armored as they, they said in the novel, the bears make their own armour out of this sky iron. It's like a special kind of iron that's particular to only the bears can sort of mould it or meld it or whatever. But right. they're excellent smiths, metal smiths. And they make their iron and that it functions like their demon. They can't, because they're a warrior race, so mm. all about just fighting wars and stuff, uh, they have to have their armour. And without it, they are, you know, less of a man, whatever, toxic masculinity 
allegory you want to fit onto it. Um, It's like what they're actually lacking is their own spiritual armour stew. (laughs) (laughs) It's a metaphor. Yeah, look, I, I just really liked it when the bear put on the awesome armor and then fought a bunch of dudes. Um, that that was pretty great. No, no, Stu, I was very very into that. Just you, the armor that mattered was on the inside. No, the armor that mattered was the actual physical armor that the the polar bear put on, um, and then fought a bunch of guys. It was great. He had to very sum, very good. Had to summon up that fighting spirit. <laughs> <laughs> all of us uh but yes uh, polar bears fighting is always cool um except in real life when obviously that's that's a sign of climate change and reduced territory and encroachment yes. on um, available food sources and is actually a tragedy but moving right along uh the <laughs> eofa raxton and it i thought they played that scene really really beautifully because he's the new king and he mm. from my memory of the books he beat Yorick in a battle. So to, to become king, I don't I think it's like a, a literal um almost like the Dothraki. You have to beat someone in combat essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so that that was I, I got that impression, but I didn't know whether I was like reading too much into it. So Yorick used to be the king, right? He was the king of I don't know if all the Pantabion, I can't remember. But, but like the his his <laughs> tribe of bears. Yeah, he was a big dude. And I think well, he's a very big boy. He is, and I think that he was tricked, or Eofa Ragnarsson had help in beating him. Um, and Mrs. Yes, Cook a... provided that help, but I can't remember what the nature of the help was. Whether it was how they said that he was drunk, and Lyra was saying, "Oh, they tricked him into drinking spirits. Polar bears normally don't drink spirits." They normally stick with the mild cocktails and shandies. <laughs> They're strictly sh- beer and wine. Do people still drink shandies? Oh, I'm sure they do. They probably just don't call them that. Was a sh- I mean, a shandy when I was growing up was like half beer, half lemonade. Is that, is that what your definition of a shandy is? I mean, I mean, yeah, but but having said that, um, now that you put it that way, probably not because I feel like. People, people just don't. If if you're if you're not if you're going to put lemonade in a beer, you'll probably just drink like one of the lemonade-based alco pops that are out there, <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to just drinking half a beer. Well, I think Stu, I want you to cast your mind back to a time before mixed alco pop lollies, uh, <laughs> to a time before incredibly fruity, uh, uh, you know, craft beers and IPA what's-its. Mm-hmm. Yes. The time when the beers available were Forex or VB or if you were very fancy, maybe a Crown Lager. Yeah. Uh, I remember as a kid, my parents, because my parents spent my childhood trying to get me to drink. I don't, I mean... <laughs> I'm not you, you've never, I, I've, I've never heard that before. That, that's incredible. No, look, I'm, I'm making that to be very irresponsible. My parents had a very responsible, uh, I think, um, view on alcohol, which is if kids show an interest, then talk to them about it, 
offer them some of your drink uh, and teach them about having alcohol with meals and drinking responsibly and not make it a big scary, never do this thing. It was like, oh, are you yeah. interested in trying this? Um, try this with your meal. This is what, you know, this is how you pair wines with meals or whatever. I, I, I exaggerate for comic effect. But, yes, essentially <laughs> they tried to get me drunk. Um, no. But that <laughs> I remember my mum saying, would you like to try a shandy, which was like a half beer with half lemonade to, like, dull it down a bit. Right. And I remember going, eh, no, it tastes gross, which was my answer to everything they tried to get me to drink. They're like, would you like to try a sip of wine? And it was never like, hey, have ten shots, kid, and off you go. It was just, hey, you know, alcohol is something that you have with meals, and it wasn't a scary never do this thing. Mm. Because it wasn't scary to me or because it wasn't like a, ooh, I've been told I can't do this, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, my mum's on the brandy and Cokes all the time. That's fine. That's her thing. I'm not interested. And so I never had the whole, like, oh, I'm going to go off secretly and drink. <laughs> Why did I talk about this? My uh, bear's getting drunk. Bear's getting drunk. So what I'm saying to you, Stu, is that the yes. bears have clearly not grown up with parents who go, look, Eoric Bernison, just have a mild shandy. <laughs> I think a shandy is a very particular Australian sort of drink, like a lemon, lime and bitters. Yes, possibly. People anywhere else around the world do not know what you're talking about when you ask for a lemon, lime and bitters. No, yes, I, I didn't realise this. There was, there was a whole article about that that I saw um, just recently where, yeah, it's one of those things where you don't realise it's an Australian thing. Like no one else in in the world, it's like it's like the nut bush. Like no one else in the world does this, but you think it's just universal. <laughs> well, we all did the nut bush at school. And if yes, we but no that, one else does. Did you know? Do you know this? This was this was the other thing. Like to get completely and and irrevocably off topic. Um, <laughs> like you you know the the nut bush dance. Yeah. Like, oh, you, I know. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say the nut bush dance. When I was uh, a kid, it was called the Madison. Was it? Yeah, well, that's what I remember it being called. The dance was called the Madison, and you did it to Nutbush, City Limits. Okay, right. See, so, no, literally no one else in the world does that dance to that song. Well, they clearly didn't have a proper education, student. Well, that's right. They clearly never went to a blue light disco. Because that's all everyone, I'm saying. Everyone, when you're in primary school in Australia, spend a good portion of your learning time. <laughs> Of your education. Learning, learning how to do the nutbush dance. Learning how to do the nutbush. Go, go, go to YouTube. If you're not from Australia, go to YouTube. Look up Australian school nutbush or whatever. You'll get the idea. But you will still go to a wedding or a party or any kind of function and that song comes on and people will start doing it. I hope they're still teaching kids that. I don't know. Kids have to do so much more at school now. They have to <laughs> What are, they, what are they teaching them at school? Maths? Science? Yeah. Teach them the nutbush dance. We also used to do the hokey pokey, but that's a New Zealand. No, that's the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, no, hokey pokey is New Zealand. I was like, no, 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 that's the ice cream hokey pokey. <laughs> I have no idea if New Zealand does put the left one in and put the left one out. <laughs> They, they probably do, but they probably do it in a way that's just subtly more cool than we are. So I'm, we'll put the challenge out there. You know, call in 
if there is a tradition that you do, or I mean, if you're Australian, we might all do it, but but list on maybe on the comments of this podcast when I put it on Facebook, just call in and list what weird custom that everyone in your town or city or country knows, but nobody else does. Because mm. I'd like to know. I'd like to know what the odd things are that. But yeah, we seem we seem to have we seem to really corner the market in odd traditions in Australia. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like just weird, like, like stuff like that. Like, and the idea that the idea that everyone does this one dance, it's not like the dance that is associated with the song originally. We've just added a dance to yeah. the song. Like, it's just it's the most bizarre cultural thing. And there's well, the thing is though, I really like and and just to get slightly off topic again, but talking about um, uh, Die Hard the movie, the play, which I'm doing at the moment, and I'll I'll. I'll I'll spoil this. Oh, I should. Yeah, okay. No, I won't. I won't. Let's skip over that. <laughs> I better not spoil a joke. But let me just say that we have some references in the show to things from the 80s and things from the 90s and maybe a couple from the 2000s, and they get laughs still. And I'm grateful that there's an inbuilt cultural knowledge that, is still enough to get laughs from jokes from <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years old. Yes. So, oh, my God, 40. This is the thing. We're going into 2020. Have you also been seeing all these articles about, hey, here are the defining moments of the 2010s and going, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. A whole decade uh, has passed and I have been largely oblivious to it. <laughs> <laughs> We haven't like Game of Thrones was in this decade. No, totally, yeah, yeah. Stuff's been going on, but it's just that it's just that thing where, and and not only that, like like the the 2010s doesn't sound like a proper decade. It sounds like we're all biding our time until the 20s arrived. That's right. And I, I, it's going to be interesting because now we're at a time with the 20s are a decade people remember. You know, nobody has nobody has a party with, you know, come dressed in the 1910s theme because you just get everyone dressing as soldiers and nurses from World War One. <laughs> it's a bit of a downer. People still have 1920s parties. That's it, yeah, yeah, flappers, flappers and gangsters parties. Yeah, so are we going to have like a whole decade of going retro, hey, let's throw back and have more, or is there going to be a new thing that defines this 20s? And so when we get to the 30s, when we refer to the 20s, We'll have to specify, no, 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 not the 20s we just had, but, like, the 20s. Mm. Do you get what I mean by that? I do. I know, I know exactly what you mean. And it's it's a really weird thing where, you know, the, the 20th century really defined itself in terms of decades in a way that I think I, – I don't necessarily know that earlier earlier periods did that so much, like like really rigorously delineating the decades and using that as a measurement of time. Well, um, the difference like culturally? Is, the, the, the difference is I've, I've looked at costume books that can pinpoint fashions of, say, the 1740s versus the 1760s and the 1780s. Sure. Like, that exists. But this is a thought experiment. I can't remember where I saw this. But if you think about someone in 1800 work like a person in let's just say Europe because we're you know anglocentric view get it but a person in Europe working on a farm in 1800 mm. your life would not be that much different 
to someone working on a farm in England in the year 1700. Sure. That much difference. But compare that to someone working on a farm in the year 1900, huge amount of change. Railroads and telegraph and telephone and absolutely that. yeah and, and then and then the difference between 1900 and 2000 and, is an order of magnitude greater again crazy so it makes sense to me that as you say those decades started becoming way more um defined because of the change so will will that still happen or is change happening so fast <laughs> You know that, that that decades won't be; they'll be too slow. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe the ten-year period is not the correct like cultural unit of time anymore. Maybe it needs to be like every five years or something. Yeah, but it's crazy to think that it is now going to be when we refer to something as being forty years ago. It's it'll be the eighties. Yes, the nineteen eighties was forty years ago. <laughs> shocking to me. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I 1,000% agree. It's, 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 a, it's a, a frightening uh, reminder of the inexorable march of time. <laughs> uh, speak- <laughs> so, speaking of which, I, I will just say, um, on, on that theme, I have never felt older in my entire life because, I, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, I've never been this old in my entire life, and and we all haven't. But I've never felt older in my entire life than this week, when the Australian uh, Aria Awards, which are our Grammys, uh, happened, and there was a lot of talk about a recording artist that by the name of Tones and I, uh, who I have never heard of, ever. I I didn't understand the the word. I didn't understand the collection of like sounds that were being made by presenters when they were talking about this person. So uh, or maybe it's a group. I'm still not sure. Tones, like as in a, a key tone or a mobile phone tone. T O N E. Tone. T O N E S. Tones. And I. Tones and I. Yes. So like I'm hanging with my buddy Tony. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly like that. Going to the shops. I'm sorry, uh, that's that's not a name for a for a band or a <laughs> or a singer. This is just not a name. Singers have I, names. I agree, but I feel like we're not in the target demographic. No, Stu, I don't think you understand. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> But seriously, like, you know, I, I consider myself like, like, you know, just because like I work in the media and I, I, I pride myself on being relatively up to date with most, like just having a working knowledge of lots of different things. Yes, of course. Um, you know, I, I just sort of file it all away. My, my brain is a weird like lint trap of trivia. So like, you know, stuff, stuff goes in and I do pick stuff up and I am relatively aware of things that are happening in the world. I have I had never heard of this. I, I still don't know if it's one person or like it looked like it might be like two people. Um, <laughs> no idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, Astonishing. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> this, this what I'm rapidly realizing might be the, the beginning of a midlife crisis. Can probably wait until like after we finish talking about this awesome show. I, I, I looked up, I had a similar thing this week 
because I have heard the name Billie Eilish, that singer. Oh, Billie yes, yeah, yeah. Heard that. she's She's been around for a while, but this the song Bad Guy that I've just been hearing in the background all the time, and I finally decided to look her up because she's been nominated for a bunch of Grammys or something. Mm. I thought, oh, she's a young, young woman. She's probably, you know, early 20s, mid-20s. She's 17. So it's a Lord situation where she's sort of she's yeah. just super super young, but like she, really talented. I think she turns eighteen like next month, but she's been singing and popular for two years. So she was fifteen when she first got got famous, and now she's become super famous. Sure, why not? So she was born, and this is going to age me, Stu. After I left university. <laughs> oh, boy. And that okay. makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, you are right to do, do you are right to feel old. That, that would make anyone feel old. Who are mega famous, mm-hmm. are more talented, and have, you know, she's not even 20. She's not even yeah. 20. I well, feel- she's, she's not even of legal, of legal drinking age in Australia, let alone the United States. Exactly. And she's going to be at the Grammys performing and winning awards. Yeah, and probably doing, like, Coke in the bathrooms or something. Probably. Good on her. But where do you you go? How do all these people – no wonder people – I've often wondered this with footballers and stuff too, when they become, like, famous so young for a talent, Mm. no wonder you get all messed up because your whole life becomes super famous super early. Totally. Look, I'm saying this out of jealousy. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe I would have started drinking if that was my life. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's extraordinary because I'm like, I'm only now starting to think, oh, okay, maybe I have some talents to make my way in this world with. <laughs> and I am not 17, Stu. No, yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, God. This is just going to be a podcast, two hours of old people going. No, we- <laughs> just of Just of you and I. Sympathising with each other as we slowly slid into a into a midlife crisis. Oh God! Anyway, Eo Varaknison, the yes. other. <laughs> oh God! I, look, forgive me. I have been doing a play, and uh, you know, but he is voiced. I just I checked this in the thing. He's voiced by P- Peter Serafinowicz. Oh, is he really? Okay, right. Because he is great. He's one of those. Uh, amazing uh, actors. He's incredible. Uh, I think he's the tick at the moment. He is the tick. Yeah, yeah. Well, not at the moment. The, the, the show got cancelled, unfortunately. But um, yeah, no. He was he was the most recent version of the tick. Oh. Um, he was uh, he was in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, as one of the Nova Corps. Yeah. Um, he's been in a bunch of things. He was in Shaun of the Dead as the crappy housemate. He's the voice of Darth Maul. Is he? Yeah, he has like two lines. <laughs> Um, but yes, he is Eofa Rackmason, who's kind of hiding in a cave, and he's the king of the bears, but he's hiding in a cave. And I think that is a was a beautiful way of showing that he's not the rightful king, that Mrs. Coulter helped him get that crown by deceit, mm. and and the way she's trying to get another favor out of him is by saying, "Oh, we'll baptize you into uh, the magisterium," I guess you know, quote-unquote Catholicism. Sure, yeah, exactly. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that, 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 that reference felt really weird. Like, like that, that specific 
reference felt very strange to me for some reason. Like, like I know they've, they've obviously been alluding to the fact that the Magisterium is, uh, you know, re- religious in nature, but like the idea that you are baptized, like that, that feels like a very specific thing, whereas everything else has been very general. Mm. I, don't, I don't know why that sort of, that, that, that really sort of clanged, I, not, not in a bad way, but it's sort of like, I was like, oh, that's, that's really close to the bone. Like the idea that you get legitimacy in this world by being baptized in the magisterium. Mm. So I'm, yeah, I can't remember from the books or anything what he's trying to get by being like, why that's a carrot you want to dangle in front of him. But obviously well, is it just a status symbol? Cause she said like no bear has ever been uh, baptized. Yeah, and it maybe he thinks it'll solidify his claim to the throne, mm. if not actually. But if you notice, I found it really interesting, the stylistic differences between his armour and Yorick's. Yes. Because in the movie, when they made the Golden Compass, the movie with Nicole Kidman, our Nicole, uh, they put him in golden armour, which looked cool. But I thought it was su- such an interesting choice that his armour this time around was just iron. It was just like an iron armadillo Oh, wasn't I? I thought it was gold. No. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe I maybe it, may, it might have been the like the reflection. It might have been more polished than um than Yorix was. Um, but I I, I I thought that was how they were delineating themselves because like Yorick has like iron armor. That's and <laughs> we're talking over each other because we're on Skype. That's what I meant. So Yorick's armor was iron, and Eofa's was gold and very fancy. Right. But Yorix was plain, hard. It was fighting armour. No bells and whistles, no embellishments. Right. Okay, yes. He's the true king because what's that? Who's that? Is it Carrot from Terry Pratchett? Yes. Yeah, yeah. His sword is a king's sword because it's just really good at cutting stuff. There's no magic involved, no bells and whistles. And that was a similar thing, whereas in the movie, Yorick's armour was gold and a bit fancier. Oh, right, okay. Was a really and, and also he was voiced by Gandalf, so. True. I did think they <laughs> might get him back, but they probably couldn't afford him. Well, also they, they probably don't. They probably want to draw a pretty solid line between them and and the movie version. True, true, true. But Ian McKellen. <laughs> um, but yes, so uh, that was a little fun bit with Eo for Ragnarsson, which I think is going to show that. Yorick will fight him again in the mm. future to regain his power. Whether that happens next episode, I'm not sure. But essentially, as you said, Lyra was the instigator of getting Lee and Yorick on board with the Egyptians because the Egyptians weren't interested in either of them. Totally, yeah. <laughs> well, like they thought they, they might, it might be useful to have a giant armoured polar bear around, which, you know, you can see their reasoning. But then, you know, he he was a bit prickly and said, "I don't want to come." And they're like, "Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna argue with the giant polar bear. Um, if he doesn't want to come, no one can really make him. So we'll uh, we'll be on our way." Uh, but right. then Lyra, but then Lyra says, "You know, no, we need a giant armored polar bear. We're gonna need one of those." Mm. So uh, off she goes and, and gets him, and it's fantastic. Yeah, and that was a really fun sequence of her going, "Okay, I'm going to tell you where your armor is." And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to kill people if they get in my way. <laughs> Are you good with that? Have to be cool with that. And she's like, cool, I'm cool with that. 
And then he goes in and he breaks into the um, church and it was a beautiful reveal where they, they just show like show him throwing people out of the window. Yes, that was very good. <laughs> and everyone's like, uh-oh, and then he just strides out with his armour back in place and the change in his demeanour, because he really was very depressed. Yes, exactly. But I think, yeah, I think what happened was he was – tricked into drinking, he went nuts, he beat up the town, and then somehow they were able to, and this may be where Mrs. Coulter came into it, but they were able to keep him indentured to repay the town by, you know, making stuff, you know, with their iron, like building things for them. Yeah, absolutely. Like they, they say he's paying off a blood debt. Um, yeah. Uh, which doesn't quite help when he then starts killing more people. But that's okay. Yes. Okay. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Um, another thing about this episode is we learned a little bit about Serafina Pecola before we even see her. Um, yes. She uh, and uh, Jay or Mormont totally got it on. <laughs> And that was there was a really beautiful scene with he and Lyra um, where he started to cry, talking about the son that they had and yeah. how he died. And he just wanted to mourn quietly, but she wanted to, like, tear the world apart and try and get mm. him back and all this other stuff. And she had this rage of grief, whereas he just wanted to be quiet and their relationship didn't survive that. So it was, it was very touching. And once again, James Cosmo, great actor. Absolutely, and it was it was a surprisingly um, it was a surprisingly mature um, situation for what I imagine is is like obviously a show for you know families, but but like you know aimed at younger people, and also uh, you know books that were that were aimed at, at at younger readers. Like it's a surprisingly sophisticated emotional situation. Yeah, the, well, the whole series is like that. There's a lot mm. of content in there that is quite mature, and I think. That's what I remember about it. One of the reasons I remember liking it so much is because it had all this quite deep stuff that I think is finally starting to come out now, as opposed to mm. the first three in in the series anyway in the in the show. Um, the first three were a bit more kiddie like, but maybe that's to do with the fact that you know in that situation it was Lyra who said, "What happened between you and Serafina?" You know, as you said, she's much more the driver of this episode. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it, you really, you really notice the difference now that she is more of an active character. I really hope that keeps up. And I guess the other thing to mention is the they're all heading north now. Um, yes. They've got Lee Scoresby, who's I don't, I don't, I don't work for cheap, and nor should I. You pay gold, you'll get gold. <laughs> <laughs> so cocky, Lin Manuel. So good. Um, but. He, they all take off on foot, so not quite sure how they're transporting his balloon. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you would think, like, he's bringing that, right? Like, that's a major, like, tactical advantage. I really hope that he's he's going to bring that. I assume it packs down. I'm sure. He got, it at, <laughs> he got it at Tent World or Boating, Camping, Fishing, whatever they call it. Um <laughs> Got it on a good special. Um, but they they are going to find the children, and we heard that um, – uh, what did we hear? 
that that the they're in a place called the station, and Mrs. Coulter's obviously gone north too because she is talking to the bear at the end. But they say she they're going to the station, but the witches call it Bolvangar. Bol Bolvangar, Bolvangar. Can't remember the exact pronunciation, but it means like the death or the place of death or something like that. Yeah. In which, which is never a good sign. No, no. When you when you're going to somewhere called like you know the the caves of doom. Yes. Uh, it's it's usually usually a sign that something bad's on the way. Or Mount Doom in the Lord of the Rings. I yes. always felt that was a tad on obvious. Yeah, but it do, it does fit that uh, Tol- Tolkien. Uh, not having anyone, he basically invented modern fantasy uh, and didn't really have much to draw from. So he was an incredibly literally minded man. Um, so, you know, almost all of his names uh, are very, very literal. Mm. Uh, it's, it's quite it's quite funny. Even the ones that are, you know, in his made up languages, when translated back into English, they're extremely literal. Oh, watch out. Sorry. One of my cats is having a hairball attack behind me. I was I was about to say something is happening in your house. <laughs> it sounds awful. It's quality podcast content coming oh, to yes. you courtesy of Micah, who's having a quiet almost vomit on the carpet. I don't know what's going on. Micah, can you take <laughs> I sound very careless, don't I? But this, it, if you're in a cat, it happens fairly regularly. They have these kind of coughing like bleh, bleh. So sorry about that, but it just is adding some actual animal vibrancy to the podcast. <laughs> uh, Look, it's, no, it's no armored bear, but I'll take it. It's no armored bear, but it is a vomiting cat. It is a vomiting cat. So that is great. Um, now, was there something else I was going to mention? They're all going north to Bolvanga. Yes, I think that was it. But, yeah, Asriel, uh, does she have him? Was it a lie because we didn't see it? Was it just that James McAvoy was only contracted to appear in the first and the last episode? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, a little, little from column A, a little from column B. Both things can be true. I think I'm conscious of time and conscious that I really want to talk about The Watchmen this week. So should yes. we wrap up, uh, wrap up? His dark materials there. Yeah, look, look, I, I think I think we've we've really we've, we've cracked it, um, cracked that episode uh, in the sense that yeah, no, I think it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was my favorite episode so far. I think uh, it felt like the plot was moving forward. It felt like the characters had agency. Um, the main character Lyra is uh, doing stuff and and you know doing things well, and it had a giant armored polar bear. Um, so you know. Uh, it's it's a, automatically a step up from the previous three episodes. <laughs> That's right. All uh, it's all fun and games until someone brings in the armored polar bear. Yes. <laughs> um. So let us now turn to episode six of Watchmen. Oh my goodness. How good was this episode? I feel. Because yep. last week was so good with the mirrors. Do you remember how I was saying I just loved it so much? Totally, yeah, yeah. And then this week was Angela Abar's acid trip back to <laughs> her grandfather's, you know, origin story. Yeah. And, and look, it's not – the idea of going back and inhabiting someone's brain when they're actually doing – that is not new. 
Um, I've seen that before. It's like, oh, look, I'm now walking in their shoes and this is what happened. Or you, like, what is it in Harry Potter, the Pensieve? You know, you can yes, draw. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's not a new thing to explain how someone ended up the way they were. But the way they did it was yeah. just beautiful. It's astonishing. It's, it's, it's so, so smart, so sophisticated. Um, it's, it's just really, really top-notch. Like, like that, that's the sort of an episode of a television where every single person who worked on that episode from the from the, the you know the key grip on on the day of shooting to the writers to the producers to the the set designers the dressers the sound people you know the and the actors like just every single person is operating at the top of their game like 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 episode you, it's one of those episodes of television where you halfway through i sort of you sort of have that moment of you're like oh this is going to be like on lists, you know, yeah. like of, of like best yeah. episodes of television of all time yeah. sort of thing, you know, like it just really, and I, you know, it sounds like hyperbole, but it's really, really not. This is, this was a stunning episode of television. I was, I was so totally blown away by it yeah. um, to, to the point where I, I, I want to talk about it for like 10 hours, but also I, because of, like the subject matter, I have never felt less qualified to talk about an episode of television than than I do right now. <laughs> oh, because it addresses like racism in the. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, we we are two extremely white people um, living in Australia, uh, and it is a extremely uh, extremely. Uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, like it's it's a, a very cutting, incisive. Uh, and very personal examination of being black in America. Yeah, of course. But I I mean, I want to talk about that because of how smart I think they were about how they did it. Because, uh, you know, I think that is something that we – I think that you know, we're very upfront about being white Australians, so we can yes, have the yeah. experience of black Americans. But as someone watching from a distance and having a degree of historical knowledge about, sure. you know, re- slavery in America, racism, Jim Crow in America, uh, have a working knowledge of it, I would never claim to have lived experience. But to see it be played out in such a way that, honestly, that kind of thing I think could be used as educational material for high school students in history classes like <laughs> I, um, but I mean yeah. that I, I mean that um sincerely and just the way that they dealt with stuff and made you really outraged on the character's behalf mm. and really empathy- yeah. I mean look unless you're a crazy psycho you, you have empathy for how those people were living their lives and it was um it just drew you in to go you know, uh, uh, how do I say this? So I, I, I again, have, have a working knowledge of slavery in America and, and, and Jim Crow in America and segregation and that sort of thing. And you know about lynching and you know about that kind of thing. But you don't have the full weight of it. I mean, obviously, we've got our own terrible history with our own Indigenous population, although Indigenous is obviously different to, uh, you know, slavery in America. Not trying yeah. to equate that, but um, like we don't know, we we don't have 
the deeper education that I imagine kids in America grow up with. Well, but what, but but I, I think the 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 point is that a lot of kids in America don't grow up with the education. Every African American kid grows up with it, but I think a lot of the white kids don't. You know, like a lot of them don't fully get what it's like to be black in America. And I think an episode of television like this can so instantly put yourself inside the head of, of you know, a, a guy in the 30s in America who's trying to, you know, be a policeman and serve and serve his community, but also he's a black man. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm clumsily wording it, but I guess that's what I meant was if it is able to make me as someone quite outside that system go, yeah, shit, amazing, that, like really thinking about how clever and smart and funny these people were, but just how put down they were for no good reason because of racism. I'm I'm sounding crazy. I'm sorry. I don't no, no, no. <laughs> it's it, oh, it is it's very late as we're recording this. So and, and we've both had a very busy day. So please please forgive us as we yeah try um, try try not to put our foots in our mouths uh, as we heap praise on this episode. I do, yeah. I again nothing I'm saying is 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 I, I'm just saying if it is that educational and affecting and emotional and empathetic for me watching as someone very outside that system. I can only hope that it is doubly, triply, quadruply so for people who might have been putting that off from their thoughts and actually go, oh, wow, does that make sense what I'm saying? No, like, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. It, it was so It was so good and it was so smart and clever and, adult and it wasn't preaching it was just the tone of it was beautiful and um I I worry that I'm sounding insincere and I'm really not I just enjoyed this episode so much and even the fact that they shot it in black and white like that was the memory Mm. filter was black and white just added that extra punch to me about how yeah, I, again, that doesn't – I'm trying not to sound stupid. I'm trying to provide, you know, emotional content and I'm failing. <laughs> no, Charlie, well, well, I, I tell you what, do you, do you want to go and do our one-minute challenge uh, yeah. for this? Like, like what, what did you have for your list? Okay, yes. So I – after all of this talk about how clever the episode was, <laughs> I thought that I wrote down was, wow, that was a fast jump cut to hot gay sex. I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm just so sorry. Um, (laughs) Because I was watching that scene where I guess the guy who plays Captain Metropolis turns up at um, Will Reeves' house and kind of gives him the eye and there's a slight brush of the fingers. And I was watching that scene going, I'm going to talk to Stu about the kind of overtones because we've been talking about that. that (laughs) Yeah. Did they, didn't they, with Captain Metropolis and Hooded Justice, and you'd been telling me about the history that there was always this rumour that they had a relationship. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to see if Stu saw this, you know, subtle but placed physical tension. Mm-hmm. And then it just went, jump cut, hot gay sex. And yeah. I was like, okay, well, there's, there's, there's not really any subtext anymore. They went straight for 
But I was so proud of myself for going, oh, look, I noticed the thing. And then, no, okay, that was meant to do that. Yes, you, you were definitely meant to notice that because then they, they really they really do make the, the subtext text. Um, yeah. Uh, so, that, <laughs> so that was the standout in terms of like a, you know, again, the whole episode was amazing, but that was just the bit that my brain went, that was like super fast. Um, so then I wrote <laughs> Hooded Justice Redux. And I meant the sort of the 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 origin story of Hooded Justice that yes. you, you've kind of been taking me through these past few episodes about he he was never he never revealed his secret identity. Um, there was a wrestler found in the river, and they assumed that was him because he disappeared mm. at the same time, and he was a white guy. But I had never because I didn't know the backstory, and I, I went and read a little bit about it. Um, about how Hooded Justice appears in The Watchmen and you never see his face but you do see his eyes. Mm, yes. And how so that was he was as as drawn he was a one would assume a white man wearing a hood. Yes. Interestingly enough my reaction was then why would he have a noose like that around his neck? Like to me looking at it now it, it seems absolutely the truth that that would have been a black man because like that the noose is so symbolic of absolutely yeah i mean and you you could make the argument i mean like like i think a lot of people if they didn't have the working theory because this this theory has been put forward before that he was he was a black guy um and, and that that you know would have been uh yeah, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily like a like a popular theory, but it, that that theory that that's one of the fan theories out there is that he was actually a black superhero, and because he was the the first superhero, that's actually quite subversive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but you know, on, on its face, what what he, what his costume is meant to sort of evoke is like a medieval hangman, you know, in the sense like he's got the black hood on and like the. He's got the noose around his own neck, but like you know, it's meant to be thematically like he's the he's the hangman. True. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I get that, and maybe maybe that's what um, Alan Moore originally meant, or maybe he didn't really have a plan. I'm not sure, but it just struck me as so fitting. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it fits. It, it fits completely. Yeah. And if and if it wasn't what Moore and Gibbons like intended, it it doesn't break the continuity of the original graphic novel to have Hooded Justice be a black guy because it, it just fits. It completely fits. Yeah. And and the way that Metropolis is like, look, it's going to be – by the way, he was a douchebag. I'm just going to point oh, out. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the way he said, look, not everyone's as tolerant as me. Everyone might be a bit freaked out if they work out that you're actually a black guy, which, which, ins- which insinuates that – his urbane crew of masked heroes would have a problem with the black guy being the original superhero, not just the public, but his own team. Yeah. And I, I did wonder about that because obviously that he's trying to, and you know, I imagine they probably like a couple of them probably would. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, you could also read into it a certain, like possessiveness in it in that you know that they have this secret of they're both uh gay 
and that he wants to sort of keep that between them. Oh, you know, okay. he, he wants to sort of keep that, you know, that, that that's their relationship and he wants to keep everything about that relationship to himself as opposed to, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sort of like dismissing the, the racial like aspect of it because like, absolutely that, that on the face of it would absolutely be the, be the case. But I found it really interesting. I thought it was like a, quite an interesting sort of character choice as well to have him be like really quite possessive yeah, and have he, him be. But he also then said, Oh, for our next go round, how about we both wear our masks? Like, to me, that didn't strike me as someone who's like, oh, I actually really care about you and I want this to be just us. It's like... Oh, no, yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that, like, he did I, it in, a, in, like, a loving way. I, I, th- I meant more of a possessive way. Like, like he's like, this is, our, this is our little secret. Oh, okay, all right. You know, and that, that's just another way to sort of, you know, bring someone in and... and, and uh, yeah, like, like, like yeah, uh, that, that that was that was part of it. I, I thought I thought that would, that was an, that was a flavor to that interaction. Yeah, well, because the only the only thing that did he seemed to track down Will. Well, that's what he said, wasn't it? He's like he found he found that there was some cross check that he did that Hood had just had showed up whenever Will was around or something that that meant that you must know who he is or something like that. Mm. Um, but no one else made this. Metropolis was the only person who made this sort of link. Yeah, exactly. And I guess because it's kind of it's kind of unthinkable to those people that a black man would be a a superhero. Yeah, true. You know, like like they wouldn't put it together that oh, there's there's this you know African American cop who is walking around. Um, and he happens to coincide with Hooded Justice. And then I, 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 I did wonder whether Captain Metropolis did put it together all the way or whether he actually was telling the truth when he was saying to Will, you know, I don't think you're Hooded Justice, but I think, you know, you know, you know him and you've been feeding him information and stuff. And I wonder if that was what he thought until he found out the truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because he does seem to be more generally a little bit clueless, which definitely like jibes with his portrayal in the original graphic novel. Um, he's portrayed as a little bit naive and a little bit sort of from a, from an earlier time. You know, um, yeah. Captain Metropolis. Yeah. He's, he's sort of the, you know, the, the, the straight, uh, well, that, that's, that's probably the wrong word to use, but, um, you know, he's the, he's the straight laced, uh, you know, crime fighter you know he's like we're, we're fighting for justice and the community and you know all that sort of thing uh and he tries to get and and he has the the critical line of the of the entire graphic novel where he tries to get uh a new the 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 the, the, the new crime busters he, he calls it and he tries to get uh cap uh, dr manhattan and the comedian and uh night owl and rorschach and a, and a, and a bunch of other of the new sort of heroes together and Adrian Veet is there as well. And he sort of says, you know, that the, the meeting sort of falls apart. So the, the, the team sort of breaks up before they even form into a, into a proper team. And he sort of says, you know, guys, come on, someone has to save the world, you know, and that, that winds up being 
the the pivotal line of the of the entire graphic novel because Adrian Veidt hears that and starts forming a plan. But I'm just going to say it's so odd to me still, and I know this is the whole premise of the entire show that yeah. the police weren't seen as being effective enough, so random dudes and a couple of chicks or a couple of ladies, as he says, who fancy themselves as crime fighters. Yeah. Come up with costumes. But this is the thing. The, 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 and, then, the, and then, and then, sorry, I've, I've got to finish my list. No, totally. Yeah, yeah, go, go. When he he says, "Oh, we're going to help," because um, uh, Will Reeves says, "There's the Cyclops." So he says, "Beware the Cyclops." Sure. Um, and he says they they're infiltrating the whole Oklahoma police force. Uh. And there's, 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 he, he works out that they've got a plan. It's a white supremacist plan. They're trying to turn African-Americans against each other using hypnotism. Uh, mesmerism. 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 And they um, – and, and he, he says, we'll help you fight them. Metropolis says, we'll help you fight that. And then so he comes out with this brief of evidence and Metropolis goes, uh, no, we're working on stopping this supervillain, you know, Mortlack or something. Morlock really? the, the mystic. Okay, so what came first, the crazy wacky supervillains or the crazy wacky superheroes? Like, well, they kind of they kind of happen at the same time, like they did in the comic books. Like if you if you have superheroes, you got to have someone for them to fight, you know. And it's hard, it, you know, it gets boring just beating up, uh, you know, petty petty thugs every issue. You know, and that, that's that's the thing. Like, like, so Watchmen, like the original graphic novel, is is all about taking that idea very seriously. In that, you know, what if superheroes were a thing in the real world? You know, what would that look like? What would it? What would? What form would it take? You know, you've got these people who dress up in costumes and go out and punch muggers. You know, like like that's what it is. It's, it's inherently a ridiculous idea. You know, and so yeah, like like it really it, the, the the graphic novel really digs into that idea of this these people would be weird and scary. Yeah, and and it was that moment of that like little press conference where he goes, "We've recruited the original superhero, and now we're going to go fight what was his name? Morlock the Morlock the Mystic. Morlock the Mystic, and now we're going to go fight Morlock the Mystic." And did nobody just laugh? Like, did the police not just laugh at them? For t- you, do you know what I mean? That was the most that it hit home how ridiculous. Sure, yeah. The concept of and how I'm totally now on Laurie Blake's, like, you guys are ridiculous. Yeah, Stop. absolutely. But but more broadly, what, what I love is that, that that acts as a critique of the superhero genre in general. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, and I, I know, you know, I love my superheroes. Like, I, I, I love the the Marvel movies and and you know all that sort of stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, you are you you've got a, a bunch of people in costumes punching each other, <laughs> and you know, like like the, the the very best sort of superhero comics can really sort of inspire people and and really sort of delve into deep uh, issues. But, you know, in general, it's just a bunch of people in costumes belting the crap out of each other uh and you know like they're not dealing with they're not dealing with things like you know <laughs> black unrest you know like like it's not yeah. that that that's not what the Minutemen do yeah you know and, and 
thing. That's and that's I think that's what was so affecting about this. Yeah, episode. it was it was it was astonishing. He, here's a guy with a legitimate, even without the Cyclops, right? Even without that mesmerist no, plan. But what I love is that is that like it is a supervillain's plot. It, well, like, it is. It's a, it's a it's a it's an evil organization who are using like a mind ray to like make people attack each other. Like it's a supervillain plot. Yes, it is. You know, but because it involves like the the African American population. Yeah, a white. It's not something people. that. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's a, a, a yeah a, 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 a essentially Ku Klux Klan aligned white police force working to create chaos among an African-American population. Like, that's a legitimate, even taking out the mesmerism, it's still a legitimate grounded sure. issue. <laughs> yes. And then Metropolis is like, well, we've got this mystic to fight. Like, oh, it, that's, I think that's what made me love the episode so much is that it really turned the tables between the ridiculousness of what they're doing but then the actual legitimate, serious issues that people faced that costume superheroes are completely unequipped to fix or solve. Absolutely. And, you know, like, like really without being like super on the nose about it, although, you know, it's, it's reasonably obvious in its themes, but like without being like massively on the nose, it, it kind of provides you with a perfect example of like white allyship where, you know, People say they're on your side, but when the rubber hits the road, it's like, oh, but, you know, that's kind of more your problem. Like, I don't really, I don't do that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And, 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 you know, it's very easy to sort of, like, you know, retreat back to your privilege. Yeah, or just going, I'm going to go catch some other white guy who's doing a spooky plan. You know, that's that's easy. That's the fun celebrity. Oh, look, we're in the paper. Have our picture taken. They're they're fantasists, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, Hooded Justice is created. His origin story is a crucible. It's a legitimate crucible moment. He didn't adopt anything in the moment. He just was limping back to his house after being lynched as a warning. Mm. With a hood in his hands and his hands bound or his his head with a noose around it. And then he sees people in trouble, and he's full of rage, and he's full of uh, he's full of adrenaline, and he just goes into. It. And I can't remember, and just forgive me, but I can't remember the the. I think the victims were white. Yes, they were. Yeah, yeah, very, very pointedly. I can't um, remember the assailant. And they and they thank him, like they they you know he's come in. They they don't realize he's a black man, so he comes in, he fights off the muggers, and they thank him. But I think the muggers were white as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so they take the race out of it. There, he's just incensed with bullies, essentially. He's like he's being bullied to the worst degree. You know, just taking bullying to the to the you know assault and and attempted murder degree. But then he witnesses two innocent people being bullied as well, and he just snaps into, you know, punch him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he, he has all this rage and nowhere to put it. And yeah, and that was the amazing thing about his wife. Um, and I thought their relationship was really because obviously, you know, he's having sex with Metropolis. There's 
a non hundred percent heterosexual life there. Um, totally, yeah, and you do get the sense that she maybe, if not totally knows, then definitely suspects something is is up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she's not. That's not what she worries about him. Mm. She worries about the rage that has no. But she's the one who says you've got to wear white face paint because. They've got to believe that you. the only way you can do this is that if they think you're white. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Only way people will accept people dressing up in, in uniforms and going out and punching is if they're white people doing it. Yeah. That was just beautiful and devastating and, you know, because a black person fighting for something, even if it's the right thing, is still suspicious because they're a black person. Absolutely, the, yeah context of the show in the context of racism uh not not trying to say that that's <laughs> it's i'm not trying to say black people are suspicious i'm trying to say that no 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 yeah yeah in the context of the show absolutely in the context of the show and and that was the devastating like blowers even to be someone fighting on the side of right and good they have to think that you're white to do it yeah absolutely and it was just such an effective way of placing you know truth or, or like goodness in in a skin color yeah absolutely any sense no 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 totally no i i you, you're making a lot of sense I, I agree i agree with everything you're saying which which makes for very poor radio but um but but yeah like i, I agree and, and it makes it doubly tragic because like a young will reeves grew up watching like you know old old silent movies of bass yeah. reeves you know, a, a effectively a, a, a prototype of a superhero, and he was a black a black man, but he, was, he didn't hide the fact that he was a black man, and and that was the fantasy. You yes. know, the fantasy was that that white people would accept a black superhero. Once they showed that, you know, white people could commit crimes. Yeah. Black people could be the people who stopped them. Yeah. And it's like that's what we want to believe in. But it's not the reality. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, his son, when he sees his son, because obviously they have a baby, and then time goes on, the kid's what six, seven or something, and he's painting yeah. his face like his dad, and he flips out. And yeah. He's like, no, 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 you're not going to be like this. But that's that's then the message of this is what happens when you have this rage is it's inherited trauma. Mm. You know, absolutely. Which we heard about, talked about last week. Uh, you know, tellingly by a, an African American actor, um, in that scene last week at the at the the the, the Friends of Nemo meeting, uh, where you know he said like he you know he was born like ten years after eleven two, but you know he feels like he has that inherited trauma. Yeah. Um, because and you know like like you 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 start to realize that a lot of the themes of this show are about inherited trauma about you know things that terrible awful things that have happened to your parents or grandparents or ancestors that have that are being passed down to you even lady true lady true has something terrible that is being passed to her and that she is passing to her daughter and you even know? and i because Again, and this makes me feel terrible because last week I remember, and I said, you know, I didn't buy it. It felt like, it felt like jumping on the bandwagon of something that didn't happen to you. And totally, now, yeah, 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 absolutely. 
it just maybe it was that performance, but I'm like, but that was an actor of colour. Was I was I looking at that through a prism of, oh, I don't believe you because you're black? I don't think I was. I th- I think I no, was. No, 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 no. I don't think that was. But I, I think I think you were ca- you were making a reading of it that that made sense in the moment. But when you look at the broader themes of this show overall, mm. like it's very clearly about generational trauma. Yeah, yeah, um, and something like a big squid landing. Yes. On <laughs> you know, if you imagine, if you imagine uh, Looking Glass, you know, he doesn't have any kids or any family. But if you can imagine, if he did, then yeah, he probably would. You know, in the same way that I remember knowing someone whose dad was in Vietnam, and they reckon that he you know, like was exposed to too much Agent Orange and therefore they've kind of inherited that, mm. um, that stuff does happen. So if, yeah, like, uh, so it, it really made me look at myself and go, oh, shit, was I seeing things through a uh, a filter of, oh, I don't believe that actor because they're black. I don't think I was, but I certainly did, you know, reevaluate after watching this episode no sure i i reevaluate the scene i don't think i don't think you were wrong to to sort of question the validity of his claim but i think you know thematically i think we're, we're meant to take it at face value now i think where that's that's quite clear yes um yeah. yeah so but but i mean um away from the the themes themselves i just loved things like like just little touches like well speaking of generational trauma like his mother playing the piano in uh in the in the theater as that as a signifier of his original trauma basically like that that terrible day Mm. you know and and that following him throughout his life like his memories are all tainted that that's always there in every single memory there's his mother playing the piano Mm. she she's providing the soundtrack to his life basically and the other thing that was really interesting, I mean, there was lots interesting about this episode, but that his wife, June, I think, who's, and, well, you see, I, I love the incorporation of um, Angela Abar as her granddad because I was I was a bit worried when I went, oh, she's experiencing his experiences that they were going to have her going through it all. And I'm glad they didn't. They sort of swapped in and out. So they you saw the main stuff happening to will and then just every so often you would see her reaction to something and it would they were so clever in in what they chose to have her do yeah that it it showed the reflection down and so they had her talk to the person who was reading the first superman comic yeah and that was her and that was like yeah that's fantastic and 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 you could see the little wheels in her mind but um his wife, June, who was also a reporter, given the Superman link. Um, yeah, she, she's his Lois. His his dad put her in a um, uh, his, his dad put him in a rocket ship and sent him off before he died. Yeah, it, it, it's the Superman origin story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've talked before about how this show is really like riffing on the Superman origin, and they they really brought that home this episode. Yeah. So. Um, uh, what was I saying? And she said, tell me about when you found me. So she is the baby. She's the baby that he found, yeah. So he has looked after her her whole life, 
we are led to assume. And then they have ended up as a couple because, you know, she obviously had, a, you know, he's, he's seven, she's a baby, so he's got some years on her and she's grown up with this protector who you would probably be faithful to your whole life. And so mm. if he is, uh, you know, not 100% heterosexual or, you know, wanting like, well, that's what you do, I've protected her my whole life, it makes sense that we get married. Um, but actually he's got other desires. But all that stuff just clicked so nicely into place. You know, he's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's been her protector and she stopped crying and she said, don't make me start crying again. And then he did later on just through his behaviour and him getting more and more kind of upset. Um, but, yeah, what else? What did you write on your list of things? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean the, other, the other thing that I wanted to um, mention is the, a particular scene that I love was um, when he – it's partly a, a one-shot, but, like, when he um, confronts the clan, like, the, the um, Cyclops members in the in their little den behind the grocery store, and then he sort of stumbles out into the grocery store, and it's that guy again, that guy that he keeps sort of running into – uh, who fires a shotgun at him, and so he dives through the window, and we get like a cool slow motion freeze frame, yeah, which would right. just be done, you know, for aesthetic effect in a more traditional like superhero property. But like this episode uses it as a very specific uh, indicator that like she just got a shot of adrenaline, and they're trying to bring her out of this this drug trip that she's on. Um, it's it's just such such a smart use of 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 a superhero trope. I didn't even get that. Yeah, the, like the reason everything like slowed down and stopped was because she'd just been given a shot of adrenaline. Yeah. And that as the as the adrenaline shot wore off, she slid back into the into the fantasy. Yeah, that's right. Like just stuff like that. Like it just it's so smart. And like other other people have pointed out that like um, Regina King uh, acted more in like three blinks than most people do in an entire television show. Yeah. You know, like just, just the ability, <laughs> the ability with just like eye blinks to like convey, convey like character and meaning and, and, and processes. Like it, it's just, yeah. it's incredible. Like it's next level. It's just, the whole thing is just completely next level. I'm, I'm in love with this show. Cause she wanted this episode in particular. What was, what was uh, Laurie asking her? Like, did she want to come back or well, stay? She said, Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, like she, she sort of said, you know, blink if you can hear me. And then she's like, we need to get you out of here. Do you want to, I, you know, are you, do you understand? Do you want to come back? And and she sort of blinks. And I think at that point she she does want to come back, but she's sort of in it now. Uh, and then and then uh, Cal comes and yeah, uh, tries to tries yeah. to pull her out by reading like phrases to her, but it doesn't work, and she slips back into the into the memories. Yeah, and this is what. This is what they've told me to say to you. This is your name. This is who I am. We have kids. This is our life. Um, and it was just, again, it was it was bringing back, you know, Will wanted her to experience this so she knew she had to experience it for herself. But it, it was that juxtaposition of where she's come from but also where she is now. Like, Absolutely. You, you know, hey, I'm your husband. We have kids. We, like you've got stuff to live for, if that makes sense. So just keeping her totally, grounded, yeah. keeping her grounded, because that past 
that rage that he has will pass to her through this. Like that is not. Absolutely. And we've seen her rage. We've seen her rage before. Yeah. You know, she has rage in her that she takes out on criminals. So, yeah. you know, like something has been passed down there, whether, whether Will wanted it to or not. Yeah. So um, I, it was so clever and I didn't even, but I know that, that that was how Hooded Justice first appeared, wasn't it? He crashed through a grocery to stop yes, a robbery. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in the in the in the fictional um, American hero story, we're first introduced to him when he crashes through a window and then stops a stops a robbery in a grocery store. But in this one, the 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 suggestion is well, suggestion outright text is that that guy. I didn't quite get who he was. But he was an anti-Semite, and he was firebombing Jewish businesses. Yeah, I, I get the I get the impression that he's affiliated with uh, Cyclops, um, yeah. and he might not, he might not be like a full active member, but he's also like a massive racist, uh, and you know well, he's he's conducting hate crimes. Yeah, the clan are anti-Semitic as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and so, I mean, basically, like, we got two massive answers to questions that have been uh, hanging over this show in this in this episode, which is, one, Will is Hooded Justice. We get absolute, very comprehensive confirmation of that in this episode. But also, um, we get the confirmation that Will, as an older man, killed Judd Crawford with his, with his mesmeritic uh, flashlight. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. I totally forgot about that. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we see that scene. Um, we see him command Judd to hang himself, and he has that incredible conversation with, with Judd where Judd says, you know, I'm trying to help you people, which is obviously a, a, a loaded phrase. But, you know, you wonder, you, you do get the impression he might be telling the truth there. So what's actually going on? Yeah, why him? Why Judd, I mean? Like, why was it just to get because he knows Angela? So it was to get Angela is an inciting event, you know, gets her. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, like, I have to kill your boss, who you think is all goodness and niceness. But to I expose know. the fact that he is secretly a member of the 7th Cavalry and also, like, has a clan robe in his closet. Um. You know, and that there's there's obviously like all sorts of uh, very loaded themes going on there as well. And you know, like Southern America still very much clings to like its Confederate roots and and all that sort of stuff. Like there's a real, you know, even even people who don't consider themselves uh, racists, you know, also believe that you know stuff like a Klan robe is part of their heritage. Yeah. You know, like like that that's a very complicated situation. And and also, I mean, we had that line two episodes ago from um from Looking Glass where uh you know, she asks him about Judd. You know, she says you're like, Do you think he was do you think he was, you don't think he was a racist? And, you know, uh Looking Glass replies, Well, he was a white man from Oklahoma. Mm. You know, so like there's a there's stuff there. Like there's there's some really meaty, deep things to dig into there. Like this 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 episode just ah uh, it just just blew me away by how it sort of 
threw that stuff all out there. Yeah. While still like, while while still at its heart, and we need to bear this in mind, was an acid flashback caused by drugs that give you other people's memories, <laughs> showing her original like 1930s superhero grandfather finding out there is a secret conspiracy to use a mind control ray to control the black population of New York. Yeah. Right. It's it's so ludicrously comic booky. Yes. And yet it is very, very sophisticated. I love it. It's just, it's, it's, it's a miracle, this episode. It's so good. And I just, and I think that's what I mean by dealing with subjects such as race and, uh, you know, nine, 1930s America and segregation and, and all that stuff. Just the heartbreak when he's inducted as an officer in the police and the captain just moves past him. So he's telling when he gets his badge or whatever, and he's telling everyone like, "Do us proud," and he just walks straight by Will, and it's up to the other black officer to go. Mm. Oh, I'm doing the pinning on you. Like who just, was who was again? It's one of those things. He was a real. Uh, he was the first black New York police officer, Lieutenant Battle. In real life, or in, in real life in our world, yeah. yeah. So they've they've used a, a reference, another reference from from an actual historical reference there. So yeah, but that kind of thing, like how how could things be so blatant that you would pass over? And I get, I know I sound naive, and I know I sound, but just <laughs> I, I just don't. It it so blows my mind that that could be so important to someone that the basic human empathy. I, I don't know. I'm not expressing myself, but it was moments like that that just broke my heart. No, totally. And yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. There's that moment of you. This is an achievement and a great thing and diversity and 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 then the captain is like, "I'll miss you. I'll go over here." It's like, oh god. Mm. Anyway, I'm, I'm I I so enjoy learning about this stuff in America because it helps me understand. You know, I just I think about when I was a kid and the LA riots happened, and I didn't understand why. Because yeah, totally. I I didn't have the context of I knew about slavery in America, but slavery I probably didn't know a lot about Jim Crow being a kid and being an Australian kid, but I didn't understand just the uh, uh, racism in in America. I didn't have the mm. knowledge. And I didn't have the historical um, knowledge yet. So, totally, yeah. Uh, so I didn't understand why. I was like, but that's not slavery anymore. And, oh, okay, black people are discriminated against. Okay, I can understand that. But you don't have that depth. And I, I just think what this episode did so well was simply and, and empathetically and cleverly just – put you there and I know that sounds so naff because of course it was a flashback episode and stuff but acid trip episode well no but but, but that that's literally what happened to Angela yeah you know, like, like she she got put and she she lived that as her experience and through her we got to do it too yeah and and it just I hope that that is educational for people because you, you don't know how much people are going to read or, and I try to educate myself about a lot of this stuff and, and read up on things. And 
Um, and But sometimes it's pop culture that can just really directly plug you in and a lot mm. of people who don't understand because we have an Australian historical background. I mean, you know, a lot of people in Australia probably don't understand uh, a lot of these things. Well, and, and Australia has its own things that, you know, we, we have to grapple with and we're, we're sort of taking our first steps towards doing that, but that's yeah. going to be a long, a long of journey. Course. Of course. And I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not trying to diminish any of that. I'm no, not- sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, like, like yeah, it's, it's different, different situations. Yeah, there, there is certainly, uh, you know, a white supremacist element to Australian, uh, white Australians and, and historical dealings with Indigenous Australians. And that is that is real and it's a shameful thing and we do need to grapple with it. But the legacy of indentured slavery in America, and we did have slavery here, we had South Pacific Islander slaves in mm. yeah. particular, um, not to diminish it, but on, on a smaller scale you know the scale of slavery in the united states um was enormous and the consequences like the moral tear of that and Mm. just how it sat with that country for hundreds of years is what's really interesting to learn about through shows like this they're just able to educate in a way that you know even a wikipedia entry probably can't just by plugging it into the emotion so totally yeah, I, I, and I think I saw someone uh, in, a, in a commentary piece about this, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was something like, uh, I think it might have even been the creators talking about why, why do we only talk about race in superheroes when it comes to, like, Black Panther? Uh, yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> of the black superhero, it's like all everyone else is a superhero. That's the black superhero when, when – the context is we're all people and there were going to be what if superheroes were started by a black man? So it's, again, not expressing myself super well, but hopefully you understand. No, totally, totally. And and I think that that's something that, like, comics in general has, has done a lot to correct in the, in, the last, in the last few years specifically. I think there's been characters that have been introduced and that sort of thing. But the, the, the trouble is, like, you have the inertia of some of these characters like Superman and Batman, for example, have been around for 80 years. Um, you know, like character, a lot of these characters have a cultural inertia to them that if you've just introduced a new character, they're not going to have that weight behind them until some time has passed. So it's something that, you know, it's good that like they're taking steps to sort of introduce more, you know, people of color into, superheroes in general but it's going to take some time for that to sort of build momentum you know and in the meantime you've got a very an extremely white and mostly male uh set of characters yeah and i guess that's the issue isn't it when people go oh no this character why are they a, a woman or why are they black or why are they this and it's like well because of it's the white, range of human <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I yeah, it, it's it's when the default is is that one thing. Um yeah. so I just really I, I really can't praise this episode highly enough. It just it, it had me locked in. I you know, I I, I mean I didn't cry but it wasn't game and that seems to be the only show that evoked tears from me. Um but I <laughs> was so I was so 
invested and I loved Will and I hated that he couldn't move past his rage. You know, I wanted him to um, uh, find peace, I guess, but also I wanted him to, like, punch all those white supremacist cops. So, you know. But the other thing I was going to ask is, I, I think I imagined this, but at the start they showed like that American horror, uh, sorry, American hero story, yeah. um, and they showed that the reason they thought that Hooded Justice um, had a noose was sex stuff. So they were really yeah. playing up the whole bondage thing. Sure. And that's why they had him there, and so they got him to take off his mask, and they had it, and they're like, "Boy, aren't you pretty?" And it was a white guy. So in the popular culture of the world. Yes. Uh, hooded, justice, hooded justice is white. Pretty white guy, um, and he looked very similar that actor to the policeman who was narrating the, I guess whatever it was that the subliminal messages in. So you know when when when. Rory, oh okay, I, I yeah okay I, I'd make that connection, but yeah no that's that's interesting. I don't know. He just looked very similar. I, again, I, I could because it was black and white and, and the other. I, I don't think I don't think it was the same actor, but, I but yeah, no, that's I, that's interesting. It just looked similar to me, and I, maybe I'm I'm reading too much into things, but I, I did like how they had like here he is. He's a very pretty white guy who's trying to keep his uh, identity anonymous because he's into kinky sex, <laughs> and instead they, you know, they they you know Will Reeves' sexuality was a part of it. But it wasn't the defining part. The defining part was his rage. Absolutely, yeah. So. Yeah, no, no, it, it, I, I totally agree. It's um, yeah, yeah, and then that that's the really interesting thing is that, you know, it, it brings up like issues of like intersectionality and and that sort of thing. But but it's it's really interesting that, you know, uh, his sexuality didn't really define him. You know, but his his race did. His his race was. It ended up being far much more of an issue. Mm. Um, but, you know, if he was found to be, if he was publicly found to be a gay man, that would also be a problem for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's just, it's it's all sort of mixed in together. It's it's really interesting. Um, and his, yeah. it, ended, it sort of ended with, um, with June taking their son and leaving. And so we assume that is Angela's father, the boy. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and I can't remember. I know we saw her parents or her – was her parents in when she was at the, 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 the genealogy centre and she had her acorn and it kind of showed briefly. Yeah, yeah, it showed a picture of her parents, yeah. Yeah, so you get the idea that she took off with him and went back to Tulsa and so Will has been – he stayed in New York or he went somewhere else or he travelled the world, who knows, but now he's back in Tulsa to – put things right, or at least to educate Angela. Still doesn't explain how he's 107 and fit as a fiddle. Yeah, although um, he was sitting in the – he was sitting in the uh, the wheelchair and he got Judd to push him in the wheelchair, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I took that more as the whole controlling – like he had control over the situation by being in the wheelchair. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But, I, I yeah, did, no, it's interesting. Uh, I took, I took, I think that he could have strung Judd up and hanged him using his own strength because yeah. he doesn't seem to be a frail 107-year-old man. I think 
that he was demonstrating his power. Like I don't think Will Reeves is a superhero anymore. Like he he killed that man in cold blood. He mesmerised him. Not saying it wasn't necessarily justified, but that's still a brutal thing to do. Sure. Um, and again, years of of discrimination and, and and assault and that kind of thing. I get it. He was proving a point to Angela, but still, I thought that was a I have you in my power kind of thing. You know, I'm yeah, totally. you, not the other way around. Absolutely. And then it ended with Angela waking up out of her acid trip and Lady True was there. Yes, and she had the biggest cannula in her arm I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty nuts. Uh, it was a nuts episode. I don't know. What else to say? What else do we say, Stu? Well, the only, I mean, the only, the only other thing that I have to add is that I have a, I have a working theory now about what I think might happen, um, oh. in in the next, like as part of their big master plan, something is happening with that clock, like the Millennium Clock that Lady True is building. It obviously isn't just a clock. Something is happening. Um, I wonder if because we've seen that Will has a mesmerism device, I wonder if they are building a much bigger one. Ah, so they're going to mesmerize all the white people to maybe, maybe in revenge. Which you know, hey, look, why the hell not? I don't know. Um, maybe that's too obvious. But but that that, that I sort of put those elements together well, when I was watching I, the episode. I was like, oh, that's interesting. In, in, another reason why I'm sort of liking the show is I just I don't think too much about what might happen. I, I yeah yeah. I don't have to know and have theories, but then I think that's what I'm like. I didn't really do that <laughs> as well. I think I just like being on the ride and seeing what happens. And totally. if I can guess some stuff, then I'll be like, ah, oh. but I, yeah, I don't have a need to plan things, but maybe I should because it would actually utilize my brain a bit more to think about what it could all mean. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just, I'm really enjoying the show and I hope people, uh, we should probably wrap up because this is almost a two hour podcast now. Yes. But <laughs> I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about it because I just love that episode and it really stayed with me. You know, I've thought about it a lot since I want to go back, haven't had time, but I want to go back and rewatch it and sort of pick up things I might've missed. Uh, yeah, just one of the best shows that's been on this year and one of the best episodes of shows. Uh, I, I don't think that's hyperbole to say that. No, no, no. Like, like I said, like, like th- that episode is going to be on like best of lists mm. for the foreseeable future. Like it's, it's just an incredible hour of television. It's amazing. Uh, and so we've got three to go. Is that right? Seven, eight, three nine. to go. Yeah. Yeah. Seven, eight, nine. Oh, that's exciting. We're in the home stretch. So th- this was the end of, of the middle section, and, yeah, we're in the home stretch now. Yeah. So there, were, there was no Veet this week, so presumably we'll see what happens with him next week. Yeah, whether he's managed to get anyone to rescue him. From Absolutely. And and we're yet to see Dr. Manhattan. Uh, so yeah. who knows? I really wonder how they'll bring that in. Because they have to, right? Unless that's season two. Maybe. I mean, uh, I, yeah. Who knows? They've signed, they've signed for another season now, haven't they? 
They have, although I, I'm, I'm. It remains to be seen. I'll, I, I imagine this is going to be a relatively self-contained story. Yes. Um, but I wonder how open-ended it will be, and whether they will continue on with this story, or whether they will craft season two as more of a like whether this becomes a bit more of an anthology series in the sense that you know um yeah well, you know, they, they shift to a different story for next season who knows yeah but i mean they've done such a good job in you know the way that they have planted it forward in time and not mm. just the remake of the graphic novel but yeah it's just was such a smart way of doing it so like full totally. credit uh, is it Damon Linderhoff? 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 Yes, yeah, yeah. Just full credit, like so clever, and I wish I had a brain like that because that's that's <laughs> like it it's it's just made it all the more engaging. Rather than go, oh, okay, here's an '80s world where Nixon is president. It's like, oh, here's our world where Robert Redford is president, mm. and there's a guy on the moon or Mars that you can talk to on a phone, and um, you know, all the cops wear masks, and yeah. Anyway, we should probably wrap up, Yes, we definitely should. This podcast is two hours long and it's 1 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us if you have made it to the end <laughs> of the podcast. You know, leave a comment, say you got to the end. Uh, and, and, Stu, thank you. We will continue to podcast for the remaining Thanks. four episodes of uh, His Dark Materials and three episodes of Watchmen. Yes, we'll right definitely. Up to- at this point but um yes I've, I've got a cat annoying me now so i better go and 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 do something with this cat what are you doing <laughs> go to sleep go to sleep stop demanding scratches uh Stu, it's been awesome so great i'm so glad we decided to podcast about these shows because they really absolutely i mean watchmen's just sort of hit it stride straight away but it's it's lovely to compare and contrast the two i think it's yes really- absolutely they are very different shows and in on the uh, meantime, this week as well, we had a new Doctor Who trailer. We did, yes, yes. Just to briefly gush about that, that that looked very cool. Uh, and the first episode has uh, Stephen Fry and Lenny Henry in it. Yeah, well, that's so not, that's not creating a big. Uh, I'm surprised <laughs> Stephen Fry has never been in Doctor Who before. He's I been think. trying. This is the thing. He he's been trying to be in it, and for some reason, the schedules and the the scripts never lined up. Uh, but. He, he has wanted to be in Doctor Who for years. So this is definitely a stars aligning moment. I hope, I hope they it's just, good. Yeah. <laughs> remember how last year they had Lee Mack, who's a really great comedian, and he yeah. was in half an episode and got killed early. I hope they don't do that with Stephen Fry. I hope they make him a recurring character that they can yeah, go exactly, yeah. or something. Because he'd be a very good villain. I think he'd be a wonderful villain. Oh, he uh, would. Yeah. But I just I hate it when they have these amazing people and then they kind of ditch them after half an episode or an episode and you go, yeah. oh, so much potential for that person and you just... <sighs> but, yes, it looked it looked fun. So I'm going to assume that'll be fairly early next year. So we'll have other things to podcast about. We sure up. will. We'll be able to roll right on. This will take us right through till Christmas and then, uh, yeah, Doctor Who starts in the new year. So we'll be able to do Who's Raven on. All right, let's clock off. Uh, thank you all for listening to this mega podcast. Hopefully you've had fun. Uh, we will see you next week for more His Dark Materials and Watchmen. Bye.